0: Now in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia, over 127 provinces, in those days when King Ahasuerus sat at his royal throne in Susa, the citadel, in the third year of his reign he gave a feast for all his officials and servants. The army of Persia and Medea and the nobles and governors of the provinces were before him while he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days, and when these days were completed the king gave for all the people present in Susa the Citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. There were great white cotton curtains and violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble pillars, and also couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones. Drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds, and the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king, and drinking was according to the ect, There is no compulsion, for the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to King Asheraz. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mehuman, Bizeth, Harbana, Bigtha, Abaktha, Zethar, and Karkis, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Asheraz, to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown, in order to show the peoples and the princess her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. At this, the king became enraged, and his anger burned within him. This is the reading of God's word. You may be seated.
1: All right. Thank you, Tara. Good morning, Arcadia. Am I on? Yep. Okay. Good. Good to see you all. If you're new, my name is Frank. I'm one of the pastors here, and we are going to be starting an eight-week series in Esther today. It's historical narrative, and so you need to have your Bibles open and in front of you to be able to follow along this morning and every morning of this eight-week series. um, I I need to uh, mention this. Uh, Some of you may be looking around and saying, gee whiz, the nine o'clock's a little bit light today, and it is, and here's why. After last week's announcement about uh, us uh, red-lighting the the, uh, Sacred Space Project, the Titus House guys took a vote this week, and they said we need to start coming to the seven thirty so that the nine o'clock would be opened up. So they were here at the seven thirty service this morning in order to give you all more room to start inviting your friends again, and so we can start filling up the nine o'clock again. So, um, and it's interesting. Uh, and until Tim and, and you guys, until you guys showed up, that whole area where Titus House usually is was like it's like nobody would go over there. But na- thank you for breaking the seal. We appreciate that. Thank you. Now we can all go over there. So anyway, we, um, we're going to be next eight weeks in this amazing Old Testament book of Esther. Uh, today we're going to be looking at, I have a bunch of introductory material to help set the context which will be very important. You'll need to follow along every week because it is a story that unfolds with new events every single week that are dependent upon each other. And so if you miss, you need to be able to go back and either watch the YouTube video or listen to the podcast, the audio of it to catch up. Uh, Always have your Bibles in front of you. you. You should anyway, but especially for this series. Um, today we'll have a number of slides, you can take pictures of the slide, or, again, like we did for the first week of the Proverbs series last month, uh, if you scan the QR code in front of you, you will get today's slides as well, so you can follow along that way um, in addition. So, the introduction to Estro, uh, Estro, <laughs> <laughs> intro to Estro, Okay. A lot of names, by the way, in this book. A lot of wonderful Old Testament names. Um, and that's one of the reasons I like this book. They're just great. If, you, if you're if you going to have kids or you want to change the names of your children, this is the book to do it in. Uh, anyway, I want to start this way. Uh, I want you to just think about the world we live in today and the way it's been for um, probably the recent memory. And, and I know I'm sorry to start with something that might be a bit depressing. Think about the world today, uh, but humor me. Um, I've read a lot about this in various sources, and I've even noticed it as I, just, as I just observe the world. It seems as though the world has been and is alternating between progress and regression. Progress and regression. Uh, between making headway with some of our challenges while watching in utter deterioration, some of our other challenges that it it just we can't seem to get a a a grip on it um there's an author who's written a number of books he's a journalist very insightful his name is thomas friedman in his most uh, recent book he makes this point uh, just just about the 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 narrow scape of digital communication and social media and he's making the point about that but but it's a much broader point and it fits in here Uh, He says that it's it's a fact that for centuries, just because of the way human beings are, for centuries, every time there's new technology that comes out that seemingly makes our life better, that seemingly is progress, he says what human beings will do with new technology is we're very quick to embrace it and start using it but it takes years and sometimes decades for us to begin to understand the del- the deleterious effects and the destruction that the new technology can also have on us while it is also showing us progress And he said that about digital communication and social media. He's saying, listen, it's wonderful that we have these new ways to to communicate and social media and all that stuff, but we're just now beginning to understand how detrimental it is actually to the human condition. And we need to be careful, and we need to watch out for these trapdoors." Well, that's been true for for centuries about the human condition, progress and regression at the same time. And the problem is, is that neither of these movements... Progress or regression is getting us any closer to what people say they want in the world, and that's a world of peace, of, of unity, and of, of nirvana, of utopia, this perfect world. Well, in many ways, that is the book of Esther. There's this constant tension in Esther, this constant irony in Esther of things seemingly moving forward and then somehow there's a reversal and there seems to be a regression. Uh, it seems as though the narrative is moving in one direction and suddenly there's a reversal and it goes in another direction. It, it, it's, it's like the perfect story, even though it's actual history, and we know that this is genuine history throughout all of the historical, non-biblical historical resources that we have. So what do we know about Esther? What do you know about Esther? So I, I've run into people, and I'll, I'll say, we're going to do Esther for eight weeks at our church, and I've had two responses, oh, one response is, "Oh, I love the Book of Esther. That's great. I'm I'm so glad you. I've been through it many times. It's a wonderful book." And then the other one is kind of like, "Oh, there's a book called Esther in the Old Testament. Oh, that's interesting. Okay." And and my guess is, and I've read this, actually read this in a couple, my guess is that some of you, maybe the only exposure you have to Esther is VeggieTales, and that's what you think of Esther is, is VeggieTales. The, the problem is, is that when you read the actual historical book of Esther's, it's a lot more like the Game of Thrones than it is VeggieTales. You need to understand that. There's some weird and wild and base stuff going on in the book of Esther. Furthermore, the the person of Esther, she is often compared to that great Old Testament saint, Daniel. Daniel, who just seems to be absolutely perfect throughout that whole book of, of Daniel. He does everything right. Every decision he makes is exactly the right decision. And people say, Esther is just like Daniel. No, she's not. She's really not. It's not until chapter 4 when she, she sort of has a reversal in her own character that she becomes more like Daniel. Uh, until then, she's really, she's really more like Kim Kardashian or Paris Hilton. To be honest with you, the things that she gets involved in the things that her cousin Mordecai push her into the things that the the instructions that Mordecai gives her are are thoroughly anti Torah. If they're both supposed to be good Jews, they're not behaving like they're good Torah following Jews early in um, this story. We need to recognize this tension in this story. So what about God? Well, sometimes uh, people will say, well, the only thing I know about Esther is that it's the only book in the Bible that never uses God's name. God is never mentioned by name in the book of Esther. Now, here's something that's interesting, too. It's not the only book in the Bible that doesn't use God's name, but it's famously the only book. For some reason, everybody remembers that about Esther. We forget that the Song of Solomon never uses God's name either. But everybody seems to know Esther's, that book, where God's name is not mentioned. And that causes a lot of people to question whether or not Esther should even be in the Bible. Martin Luther questioned whether it should be in the Bible. Of course, he also questioned whether or not the letter that James wrote should be in the Bible, too. He had a lot of problems with the canon, I will tell you. The thing, though, is that in reading and understanding the book of Esther, it is impossible, if you're a good reader, even if you're a casual reader, even if you're a bad reader, it's impossible to deny God's presence, provision, and protection in this story as it unfolds. Impossible to deny. There are things that happen in this book that only God could orchestrate. No human being could orchestrate these things. And this book highlights the irony and reality of God's hidden presence. God's hidden presence. As such, this series should be and will be Great encouragement for the many Christians who struggle with knowing whether or not God is with you when you can't see Him, or you don't feel Him, or you just don't think He's there. The reality, this reality is what caused our founding pastor, Tom Schrader, to say that the book of Esther makes the invisible God visible. At the same time, as always, we need to be sure that we don't try to make the story of Esther say something that it isn't saying. At Redemption Church, we always work hard to bridge the gap from the biblical text to our lives today so that it can help us today. But we can't do that in a way that makes the Bible say uh, say something that it does not say. And, you know, people have been doing that for centuries, getting the Bible to say something that it doesn't say in order to fit their own agenda and strategies for life. We don't want to do that. As the great Alistair Begg has said, the purpose of the Bible is not to know what it means to me, but to know what it means. That's the primary goal of studying the Bible. Then you can bridge bridge the gap. So reading well, and, and I know reading something well is just kind of a lost art today. It seems like we're good at reading bumper stickers or 140 characters, and that's about it. Beyond that, it's tough. But reading well means first discerning what the text says and means in its time when it was written but then applying it to us, bridging that gap. As such, we have to constantly ask, what is really going on in this text that I'm reading? What's its purpose? Who wrote it? Who is it written to? Why was it written? And what does God want us to know today by studying this text? And in the case of Esther... When looking for God's activity in this book, that's where we're going to find His presence. The absence of God's name does not mean He's present. I mean, think about a spouse. Okay? Does does your husband love you? Well, he says he loves me, but I know that he loves me because he shows me that he loves Anybody can say, I love you. But does he or she show their love through their behavior, through their activity, through their presence? Love does not have to be named in order for it to be true and present. Love activities prove that point. God's activities in the book of Esther prove the point that he is present. And ultimately, this leads us to understand that the book of Esther is about the providence of God and the protection of his people by and through his hidden presence. So let's define what providence is. Providence is God's caring provision for his people as he guides them in their journey of faith through life, accomplishing his purposes in them. And God's people need to be protected, especially in this story, because his people are the ancestral line of his ultimate plan to save his people. And that's the life, crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. So this book is deeply connected to the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is deeply connected to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And the ultimate victory of Esther and her people in this book, the Jews, that we find is still celebrated by the Jewish people today, some 2,500 years later. It's a celebration known as Purim. We're going to talk a lot more about that later in this series, but I do want you to mark your calendars for March 23rd. March 23rd is the actual date of Purim. And in this, it's a Saturday, and uh, here in this sanctuary on that day, we're going to have our own Purim celebration for one hour, starting at 9 o'clock, and there will be food, so you'll need to be able to come to that. Okay, so let's talk about some history. Approximately sixty years after the Babylonian exile ends, so the Babylonian exile started in six hundred five, lasted, depending on how you do the math, seventy to a hundred years, and then about sixty years after it ended in five thirty nine, many of the Jews had already returned to Jerusalem after the exile. You can read the books of Ezra and Nehemiah in the Old Testament to learn a little bit about that. But not all the Jews who were in exile went back. Some decided not to go back to Jerusalem, but rather to either stay in Babylon or move uh, further east to the Persian capital of Susa to live their life. So here's, here's a map of that. I'm so excited. I get a map and I get my laser pointer out. So cool. So... Here's, this is 2500 B.C. There's Jerusalem. There's Babylon, the site of the Babylonian exile, 700 miles to the east of Jerusalem. And there's Susa in Persia, the, the westernmost section of Persia, about 200, 250 miles east of, of uh, Babylon. And so this would be the, the core of the Persian Empire here. But the Persian Empire in this day, this is the whole area right here okay and Casa Grande is like down there I think and I don't understand this this is 2500 BC and there's a website I I don't understand how they did that very ahead of their time all right so why were there why did most of the Jews move back to Jerusalem but why did some stay in Babylon and even more moved further east to Susa why not go back to Jerusalem well there's a couple of reasons number one they had to go back and rebuild Jerusalem. There were hard times in Jerusalem, and they were now two generations separated from the people who were taken away in exile, so they had been assimilated into that culture. They were used to that culture. They liked where they they they'd figured out, they had friends and family, and they'd figured out how to live under those regimes. And by the way, living under the Persian regime was actually better than living under the Babylonian regime. The Persians were maybe the nicest warrior people in history. They were much easier to live under than most of the um, others. And so some of them decided to stay there, and, and some decided to move to, um, uh, to Susa. But, but also, after nearly a century in exile, they had kind of started intermarrying, which happens. And so then there was some question as to whether or not they were, quote, really Jewish. And so there were some who, who the hardcore Jews were kind of looking at them, history tells us, and saying, maybe you shouldn't go back to Jerusalem. Maybe you should just stay here. Sort of a Samaritan later on, sort of a Samaritan problem that they were running into. So at any rate, there's this huge Jewish contingency now in Susa. There's some in Babylon. There's some as far west as Jerusalem. They are all over the, 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 the 1, thousand, twelve hundred mile spread of, of the Persian Empire. So this is the background of the Book of Esther. Uh, What Tara read for us today starts in 483 BC, and the book lasts for about 10 years and ends in 473 BC. And here's our first bit of irony in this book. And I will tell you, I love irony as a rhetorical device. I don't think it's necessarily a rhetorical device here, but it is ironic. Uh, Ancient Persia is modern-day Iran. Okay. Now, we've talked about God. How about the human cast? There are four leading characters and three supporting characters. Let's talk a little bit about them. Uh, Leading character number one is Mordecai. This is Esther's wise and steadfast uncle. It's amazing how many people call him Esther's uncle, but he's really not Esther's uncle. When you read the text and discern the text, you find out that Mordecai is actually Esther's cousin. uh, he's a much, much, much older cousin than Esther, but nevertheless, they are cousins. And Mordecai's father was dead, and then um, uh, Esther's, I'm sorry, um, Esther's father was dead, and then, and then Esther's uncle also died. And so Mordecai, actually, when Esther was very young, took over the raising and the responsibility for Esther. He was, he was a cousin who was acting like an uncle who was acting like the father of an orphan. That's essentially what Mordecai did. And he could be considered the protagonist in the story, but so could Esther, main character number two. Maybe she's the protagonist. Esther is a young, beautiful Jewish woman who, who will remarkably become queen of Persia in chapter two. Then there is the king. You saw in the ESV, his name is always translated as Ahasuerus, okay? Kind of, aha, Suerus. That's how I think they pronounced it back then. But at any rate, he's also known as king, anybody? Xerxes or Xerxes. Just depends, Xerxes. And, and most of the time, I'm going to call him Xerxes or Xerxes during uh, this series. I'll even read it, even though the ESV text says, ah, Suerus, okay? Now, Xerxes is the son of King Darius from Daniel chapter 6. Daniel chapter 6 took place in about 520 uh, BC, and this is now 483 BC. And and I'll tell you, uh, Xerxes has many character flaws. I have a nickname for him. Some of you know what it is, it's Xerxes the Jerxes. So he has a lot of character flaws, and he's filled with paradox. He's both ignorant and arrogant. He's both stubborn and pliable. He's filled with pride and yet possesses some measure of shame. And yet, Xerxes is ultimately used by God to help save his people. God can use anybody. And then there's Haman, the fourth main character, the antagonist. He's the king's chief of staff, his chief operating officer, his right hand, and and the king's trusted ally. Uh, Haman is clever and crafty, and he's one of the most wicked persons in history, and we'll get introduced to him in chapter 3. But there's also a supporting cast of three, There's Vashti. She's the first queen. We really never even actually see her, but we are told of her in the story. And she's uh, the wife of Xerxes prior to Esther becoming queen. Then there's Haggai. He's the chief operating officer of the Chapter 2 beauty contest who helps Esther to put her best foot forward so that she might win the contest and become queen. And then finally, there's Haman's wife, Zeresh, Z-woman and she plays an important role in the unfolding of events in the middle chapters of the book and it's interesting ancient jewish commentators describe zeresh as even more wicked than haman and that's saying a lot that's saying a lot so before we get to chapter 1 here's a basic outline of the book chapter 1 starts kind of with a status quo it's a very good storytelling status quo Life is good. There's, there's these two parties. One's 180 days, one's seven days. And the king is just showing off, showing off. And then we have, we'll have two inciting incidents. And the first one, we already read it. Tara read it to us. Vashti refuses the king's command. We'll talk about that. And then the next one happens in chapter 3. Haman blows his stack at Mordecai. So chapters 1 and 2 are just kind of weird. They're entertaining, to say the least. They're easy to make fun of. And I would say they play like a really bad soap opera. And I will not hesitate to point all this out. It is, after all, part of the story in the context. Chapter 3, hello, Haman. He's introduced and given power. Chapter 4, Esther is compelled to step up and sort of her attitude changes from one of being very passive to one being very courageous and active. And then chapter 5 is the setup. I don't know if there's anybody in this room old enough who has ever who can Oh yeah, Jay, you're here. Um uh, congratulations. Uh, those of you that remember the movie 1973 movie The Sting one of my all-time favorite movies, Robert Redford and Paul Newman, that, that movie was split into various acts that had little titles, and the last act of the movie was The Sting, which is when all everything went down, the big reversal happened, but before that, you had the setup, and that's kind of how this plays out. The setup is in chapter 5, and then chapters 6 and 7, the reversal, that's The Sting, but Unlike the sting, the the story in Esther is not over. In chapter 8, we have yet another reversal, which is the counter-decree, and then chapters 9 and 10, we have resolution and victory for God's people. And again, I want to just say, we need to admit that early in this story, Mordecai and Esther are not really very good examples of Torah-following Jews, but they are beautiful examples in the end of faith, perseverance, and gospel good news of Jesus Christ, and they are great examples of how God uses broken and misguided people to achieve his purposes. That means every person in this room can and should be used by God. And it would be fair to summarize the book of Esther this way. God never abandons his people or his promises, even as his people abandon their promises and God. So again, with your Bibles in front of you, let's look at the first 12 verses that Tara read for us, and then uh, I will read the last half of it eventually after we look at these verses. So here here are these parties. There's 180 days, and then it's followed up by another seven days, and the parties were in Susa. Susa is the winter home of the Persian royalty, and then then, um, when it got... Uh, when the weather would change, they would then move to their summer home, which was in Persepolis. Okay? So think of it this way. Seuss is Phoenix, and Persepolis is Minneapolis. So they're moving back and forth. So the king is a bit of a snowbird. Okay? And then the citadel. The, what is a citadel? A citadel is a combination of an ornate palace and fortress that overlooked the city. It's something that sits high. It's very big. It sits high above the city in a militarily superior position. It's large, it's lavish, and it's completely self-contained. If there's ever another COVID uh, shutdown, you want to be in the citadel because you're not going to want for anything up there. And it's interesting, archaeologists have uncovered the hall where these parties took place. They actually have uncovered this. And there are 36 columns in this hall that were 70 feet high, each one of them. This thing was huge. There were hundreds, maybe thousands of people that were coming uh, to these parties. And, and like I said, life under Persian rule was not all that bad. They weren't like the Assyrians who w- were the people group, two people groups before uh, the Persian. So think of the book of Jonah. Jonah did not want to go to Nineveh. That was the Assyrians. Nobody wanted to mess with the Assyrians in any way, shape or form. They weren't the Assyrians. They're, the Assyrians were as brutal as any people group in history. You can look them up. Uh, So life under the Persians was okay, but aside from this lavish display of the king's wealth, the party was also intended as a bit of a war council. You notice that the military was there, and so he's throwing this party, he's showing off his power and his wealth and and his grandeur, but he's also gathered all of his military advisors because it's kind of a, a war council getting ready for their upcoming campaign against the Greeks, which, by the way, would not go well and lasted four years. And it's, you don't see it in the text until you see that some of the dates that, that are just subtly put in the text. But there is four years that elapses between the end of chapter one and the beginning of chapter uh, two. And so these parties are going on, this party. And the normal custom at these ancient parties is that the guests are required To eat and drink anything that the royal servants served to them. If somebody walked up to you and there was there was a drink, a a glass of wine, or a a screwdriver, or whatever it was, a beer, and and there was food, you could not you were not allowed to refuse it. And these parties, you could never duck out early, which I, that's my favorite thing to do at parties is to duck out early. I have a very early uh, bedtime. But Xerxes, that's party, it says right in the text, much more accommodating. There's no compulsion. Just however you want to eat and drink, it's all up to you. He was very gracious in that way. They were allowed to enjoy his table without all the usual do- decorum. But if you look at everything he's doing, the, the king, it's this combination, again, this tension. He, he wants to do this so that people will fear him, but he wants to do this also so that people will love him. And he's doing it so that also people will, will envy him. It's kind of like, he's like a, an ancient Michael Scott from The Office. You know, Michael Scott used to say, I want people to be afraid of how much they love me. That's kind of Xerxes' tension here. He's trying to accomplish all of this at the same time. And he displayed before the people all the things in the world that have always promised would fulfill us with happiness and meaning, wealth, power, and sex. It's it's, as though Xerxes is non-verbally saying to everybody with these parties, don't you wish you were me? Don't you wish you were me? And verse 10 says the king was merry with wine. That's a nice or euphemistic way to say that he was drunk and foolish. And the king, was, the king was the kind of drunk at the party at this point that makes pretty much everybody else at the party uncomfortable. Now, I know you all are in church, so you've never been to a party where somebody made you uncomfortable because they were how drunk they were, but he was that kind of, of drunk. And it's interesting. Here you go. Listen to this. He's got two names, Ahasuerus and Xerxes. The name Ahasuerus is kind of a pun in their language that means headache. He was King Headache. And, and, and it, it said, uh, we don't know if it's because he caused people to have a headache or because he was always hung over and so he had a headache, or if it was both. But he was King Headache. You know, we just finished Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 20, verse 1. Wine is a mocker. Strong drink is a brawler. Whoever is led astray by them is not wise. The person who is led astray by these things, does not have the capacity to make discerning, insightful, wise decisions. And that's what's going to happen with Xerxes here. So let's talk a little bit about Vashti because the king takes things too far. He says, I want Vashti to come wearing her crown and have her parade around in front of all of my drunken friends. Wearing her crown. It's, I tried to get away from this, but I was amazed most commentators assert that the... Assert that the way this is written means wearing only her crown. In other words, she was supposed to come naked, but she still needed the crown to make sure that everybody knew that she was the queen and she was the king's property, okay? But still, I'm like, okay, what does it really matter? Naked or fully clothed, to be put on display like this in front of all of his friends seems a bit repugnant, at least in our context today. Well, Vashti apparently agreed for some reason, and we don't know the reason why, but she refused to come. And this is the stories inciting incident number one. And in her context, you need to understand that in her context, what she did was usually a death sentence, a self-prescribed death sentence. Women were property in the first century, in the 5th century B.C. Even the queen was the property of the king, and you could not refuse a king's command under any condition, and, and he could just kill you. With, without any sort of um, justice or trial or, or any of that stuff, okay? So people often ask, this question, I, they ask this question, as like, okay, that's interesting. Uh, again, sort of overlaying our context on this, is, is Vashti the world's first feminist? Is that who she is? Well, I don't know, and does it really matter? Maybe the explanation is she's just thinking clearly. Or maybe she isn't thinking clearly. She was having her own party. Maybe she was drunk and, and, and in her drunkenness said, I'm not going to do that, not thinking about the potential consequences. So whether she was clear-headed, sober-minded, or whether she was, we don't know why she didn't. But then the follow-up is always something like, well, isn't it nice that we don't have to act that way anymore anyway? Well, let's unpack that a little bit. Women are no longer property. And I would argue that that's a good thing. Women are no longer property, but we also in our worldly wisdom have in fact sanctioned the complete, total, and unequivocal objectification of women, have we not? It's just more subtle. It's just more subtle. I know this makes people uncomfortable, but it's true. Women are objectified. Mike Cosper, not subtly, writes about this in his book. He writes this. We have immersed women today in a world that talks of good feminist game while constantly objectifying women and training them to be taken advantage by men. When the context, uh, while the context of Vashti was overt, our context today is subversive, it's nuanced. We have commodified and pornified God's good gift of sex, essentially taking something glorious and making it petty. That's some of the tension again that we have to live with in this story. At any rate, the king, is now fuming. And so let me read the rest of the chapter and unpack that. And more awesome names are coming in the rest of this chapter. Then the king said to his wise men, who knew the times, for this was the king's procedure toward all who were versed in law and judgment, the men next to him being Karshena, Shethar, Admatha, Tarshish, Maris, Marcena and Memucan. There's one of my favorite Old Testament names, Memucan. How many of you have a spice rack at home? It's like you need a jar of Memucan in there to complete, you know. It just sounds like a a spice. At any rate, these are the seven princes of Persian media who saw the king's face and sat first in the kingdom. This is his cabinet. These are his closest advisors and counselors. So Vashti's refused. He's like, ah, now what do I do? Because I got to do something. I I better ask my my counselors. According to the law, he says to them, what is to be done to Queen Vashti because she has not performed the command of King Xerxes delivered by the eunuchs? Then Spice Boy said in the presence of the king and the officials, not only against the king has Queen Vashti done wrong, but also against all the officials and all the peoples who are in all the provinces of King Xerxes. For the queen's behavior will be made known to all women, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt, since they will say, King Xerxes commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, and she did not come. This very day the noble women of Persia and Media who have heard of the queen's behavior will say the same to all the king's officials, and there will be contempt and wrath in plenty." if it please the king let a royal order go out from him and let it be written among the laws of the persians and the medes now that's let me stop there let it written be let it be written according to the laws of the persians and the medes or the medes and the persians this is very important in their day once a decree was written by the king's people and the king stamped it and it went out and it was official, that decree for no reason whatsoever could ever be revoked. And that's going to be an important theme throughout the rest of this story. You could never revoke or or annul or overturn any decree that that has already been that, that has already gone out. It was in the law and that was it. So let this royal order go out so that it may not be repealed that Vashti is never again to come before King Xerxes. And let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. So when the decree made by the king is proclaimed throughout all his kingdom, for it is vast, all women will give honor to their husbands, high and low alike. This advice pleased the king and the princes And the king did as Memucan proposed. He sent letters to all the royal provinces, to every province in its own script, and to every people in its own language, so 1,200 miles across, east to west, uh, in its own script, to every people in its own language, that every man be master of his household and speak according to the language of his people. If you're wondering how God would ever work a situation so that a Jewish woman could become the queen of Persia, this is it. The king makes a ridiculous, drunken request. The queen refuses. The king pouts and asks his wise men what should be done about the Vashti refusal and what happens. Now their counsel, you have to see this the next couple of minutes. Their counsel and advice have nothing to do with what's good for the king and the queen. Has nothing to do with what's good for them. At all and everything to do with these men preserving their control over their quote noble women that's all it is hope you understand what's going on here all of this is about the idol of power this is about the false god of power there are false gods throughout this entire book it's very instructional for us about false gods about idols these men are close to the nexus of power that would be the king and they manipulate the one with power to get what they want Now, now just grab a hold of this. In effect, because of Xerxes' drunken ego, without realizing it, he submits himself to the very men who are supposed to be submitted to him. He submits himself to the very men who are supposed to be submitted to him, and they ply him, they manipulate him to get him to do what they want, what's best for him, uh, for them xerxes may be the king but he's also in many ways the village idiot and it's because he decides to embrace the wisdom of the world we just finished the proverbs get wisdom it's as though esther chapter one is the embodiment of the fool in the book of proverbs but without this foolishness esther doesn't get her shot and without esther getting uh, her shot the people will be left to the whims of this foolish king and his evil new right-hand man Haman, who will be introduced in chapter 3. This entire seemingly ridiculous scenario is what sets up the rest of the book. So as we wrap, there is quite a bit of foolishness in chapter 1. But chapter 1, while serving as a backdrop for the Esther narrative, is also about, as I said, false gods. It's about idolatry. These two parties, 187 days total, One of the reasons that kings would do something like this, Xerxes wasn't the only one who did this, but one of the reasons that kings did things like this was to prey on everyone's sense of inadequacy and insufficiency. Insecure people, King Xerxes is very insecure, and insecure people, especially if they're in power, desperately need other people to feel like they are insufficient and inadequate in some way so that they can still rule over them. And that's what he's doing. He's, he's saying in this party, you know, if only you had all of this and I have it. That's a way of controlling people. That's a way of getting power over people. Uh, King Solomon dealt with this issue some 500 years earlier in the book of Ecclesiastes. Solomon essentially said in that book, you know, I have or have had everything that you The reader of this book, Ecclesiastes, is sure will make you complete and fulfilled. Wealth, sex, success, education, art, status, and power. And guess what? None of it will fulfill you the way you think it it will. Because none of it has fulfilled me the way I thought it would. And that truth led Solomon to declare, at the end of the book of Ecclesiastes, this simple, profound, and wise truth: if you're looking for the path to meaning, purpose, and joy in your life, there is only one place you're going to find it: fear God and follow His commands. Reading chapter one well, in some ways, is like um, like us, it's like being toto and going... Uh, to the Wizard of Oz and pulling back that curtain and suddenly realizing that for all of his bluster, for all of his threats, for all of his showmanship, he has no power in the face of the one true God. That's the problem with King Xerxes. There's King Xerxes, the king of Persia, but then there's the king and creator of this universe, and that would be God, and he has no power in his face. And of course, the idols and false gods of today wear different clothing, than they did 2,500 years ago, but they are the same nonetheless. Power, sex, status, wealth, and the way we lust for the admiration of others, even at the expense of the admiration of God. These things continue to be the things that we pursue in place of Jesus because in our hearts we really think they're probably better than Jesus. But here's what we need to remember. God has not changed. The nature of human beings has not changed since Genesis three, but technology and materialism, those things that we have to create and worship false gods and a manifest sin is now different than it was then. And it keeps getting different every single day. It allows us to manipulate our wives, uh, our lives in, not our wives, our lives in ways Uh, that, that expand our horizon for sin and corruption and challenges. And it is different in every generation. It is progress and regression, progress and regression. But the one constant, the one thing we can depend on is Jesus. Without the historical story of Esther, Jesus never comes. Without Vashti, Saying no, whether she was sober or drunk, without her saying no, Jesus never comes. Without the bizarre beauty pageant that we're going to study next week in chapter 2, Jesus never comes. Without Esther's courage in chapter 4, Jesus never comes. And Jesus is not a false God. He is God. And he proved that by coming in the flesh and living a completely sinless life and then going to the cross to be crucified as the only sacrifice sufficient to pay for our sins. And he did that for us. And then three days later, God raised him from the tomb in a resurrected life, which gives us the same inheritance that Jesus has, and that is a resurrected life in the new Jerusalem. Without Esther, we don't have that. Amen. Let's pray. Our gracious and holy God, we thank you for your word and its truth, and we just pray during these eight weeks that we would see and be filled with gratitude and awe at how you worked your plan through this wild and crazy narrative, this book of Esther, with all these characters, with all of these imperfect, broken people, how your purpose still came to pass. And God, remind us that that just like in Esther's day, we're living this life where your purpose is being lived out through us. And so, God, we thank you for that. God, we, we pray for and welcome your Holy Spirit to come and fill us so that we could live out your purposes and that we would have the courage of the chapter 4 Esther to be able to do that in the midst of a fairly hostile world. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.